You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for May 2008. Today's episode is titled, Keys to Prosperity. Everyone wants to enjoy success and prosperity in life. The question is how? What is the secret? Is it hard work? Or networking? Or a great idea? Or a rich relative or so-called luck? Or all of these? Or a combination of these? Or something else? Listen to Dr. Chester's presentation on Positioned for Blessings. Well, my topic is uh, Positioned in Discipleship, the C4 Relational Process. And, and I'm very blessed to be able to talk to you. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about being positioned in discipleship, the C4 Relational Process. And to get started, uh, let's, let's tell a joke. My wife told me a long time ago, she said, don't tell jokes. She says, you're not any good at telling jokes. So I'm going to do a cartoon. Is that okay? Yes. All right, this will be a substitute here. All right, this is a Dilbert cartoon. And I, I, I love Dilbert because it reminds me of Joe Collinger. <laughs> Joe, Joe Collinger is Dilbert Jr. Or maybe, maybe Joe Collinger is the content behind Dilbert. I, I don't know. But, you know, when you come up with Joe, almost invariably, you know, you get a joke. And he is so creative about this joke. And he remembers all these jokes. And he, I have to hear him three or four times. I've heard the three-legged chicken do- joke probably ten times now, and I'm beginning to remember it. I mean, you tell him a joke once, and he's got it. He, you know, he's got one about the three huts on the island. Have you heard the three huts on the island? You ask him about that. That's a funny joke. Okay, but here's Dilbert. Dilbert. Uh, this is Dilbert talking to his dog. And I think the dog's name is Dogbert. Is that his name? Dogbert? And Dogbert's got an attitude. He's not a friendly dog. He's got an attitude. He says... Um, I'm thinking about buying a few more fuel-efficient cars. And Dogbert says, well, why? Well, it's my patriotic duty to reduce this country's dependence on foreign sources of oil. Well, why? Because then the countries that hate us will have less money to fund the terrorists. Actually, developing countries would buy the oil and you save, thus adequately funding those same terrorists. See, Dogbert's always got an answer. At least I wouldn't be funding them myself, says Dilbert. Well, Dogbert says, oil is a fungible commodity. See, Dogbert is well read. <laughs> the capitalistic system virtually guarantees that you'll end up buying the lowest cost oil from sources unknown to you. Well, Dogbert says, well, maybe, but I want my car to make a statement. Dogbert says, and the statement would be, hey, everyone, I don't understand what fungible means. Now, the reason I share that with you, in addition to having a little levity to the conversation, is to bring up the whole concept of being fungible. Now, I'm sure all of you know what fungible means, right? Okay? Who's had securities training around here? Who's had securities training? Okay, you know what fungible is, don't you? Okay, when you took securities training, they talked about a share of stock and another share of stock. And they told you they were interchangeable, didn't they? In fact, when we trade stocks on the stock exchange... You don't trade, trade a specific share of IBM stock, you just get a share. Because all shares of IBM stock are the same. They are fungible. Okay, that's what fungible means, interchangeable. Now, my thesis is that we view people as fungible, essentially interchangeable. If you hire and fire people in the marketplace, that's pretty much the way you go about it. You go about talking about, well, I need a person to do this. Or a person to do that. 
And what you're really saying is you just assume there's just a whole bunch of them out there and you just need, need to find one. What we need to begin to get is God is very intentional about creating you, about creating every human being, and people are not fungible. You don't need a person. You need the person assigned to that work. And that's very critical. If you're ever going to manage well, you're going to have to learn to think that way. Now, let's just set the context of the conference here. Remember, the theme is positioning for blessing in the marketplace. And the text is Psalm 90, verse 17. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, what in the world is he talking about? For most of us, work is just that thing we have to do to make money. Right? That's pretty much what it is. And the spiritual things happen back at the church. Maybe in the home. At the SCS conferences. That's where they happen, right? I know where they happen. We don't view the work of our hands as being valuable to God. But the psalmist is saying here, Lord, would you establish the work of our hands? Would you make the work of our hands significant? Would you make it count? Would you make it important to you? Will you value it? The psalmist is crying out, to find his destiny because he knows when he does that, he's doing what God has created him to do. And that's what will establish the work of his hands. When you're doing the purpose for which you've been created. So, does the work of our hands really mean anything to God? Well, let's just go back to the beginning. Let's just start and review. This is just a quick review. You should know all this. And one of the tools of learning is repetition. Hopefully you've learned if you've gone through any of the BLS material, you might have seen that principles show up several times. Have you noticed that? If you go through 100, then you start 200, you'll start seeing the same things. A little deeper, a little richer, a little different cut at it, but you'll see the same thing. So we learn by repetition. So let's go back and let's look at God's purpose for man. Let's go to the creation mandate. Now, this is something that we've all read and everything, but for me, personally, I didn't get it. I don't know how many times I read it before I got it. I'm not sure I get it now. But I sure didn't get it for a long time. Because this is what God is saying. This is the reason I have made you. He spent this creative energy over this period of time, which we're not totally sure how long this took. Maybe it was 24-hour days. Maybe it wasn't. But some period of time in which... He has put, put order into the universe, which, by the way, is a key to kingdom activity. It's putting order into chaos. That's a picture of what kingdom work is. So he's putting order into this chaos. And in the midst of all this, he says, okay, now that we've got pretty well everything set, now we need to make a ruling class of being. We have all these animals and creatures and all that kind of stuff going on and plants and, and all this stuff. But we need somebody to rule this. And you notice that, that God said, let us. Did you notice that? Because he's speaking as a trinity here. As a triune person, as a community. This is a conversation among the Godhead saying, Let's, let us make man in our image. Which means man reflects God. An image of something is something that's not 
not actually the substance, but something that reflects the characteristics of that substance. The moon reflects the sun, and what do we see? We see the moon, what appears to be the moon. But the light from the moon is not from the moon, it's from the sun. Okay? So to some degree, that's a picture. So let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. That's the game we're in, is ruling. That's what I did not understand growing up in Texas as a Baptist, going to church every Sunday. I didn't get that. Now, maybe my pastor spoke it clearly, and I just was a blockhead and didn't get it. Maybe I had a preconceived idea of what Christianity was. I didn't get it. Whatever it was, I did not get it. I did not understand that my job as a human being was to find what my was assigned to rule and rule it, and to go bring order out of chaos. That was my responsibility, and I didn't get it. But that's what we're charged to do. Rulership has two basic characteristics. First of all, there's a multiplication. You know, if you think about being a disciple of Jesus Christ, here's a good text to start thinking about as to what a disciple does. One of the things a disciple does is he multiplies himself. He makes other disciples. The second thing that a disciple does is he goes and he takes whatever sphere of authority he's been given and he brings kingdom order to that sphere of authority. If you are responsible for a department in your company, then you bring, you're charged to bring kingdom authority to that, that department. In your home, you're supposed to bring kingdom authority to your home. In your church, you bring kingdom authority to whatever you're responsible for. Wherever you have authority from God, you bring, you bring order. You bring the dominion, the rule and reign of God. You also bring mastery. There's another element of, being, of subduing things, and that is you master it. You learn how to do it well. You, you do research and development. You explore and understand how God made the universe. We talk about inventing things, and let me suggest we don't invent anything. We discover things. We discover how God's universe works, and we discover how to apply the wonderful things he's put in our universe to advance and further the, you know, mankind and what God has called us to do in ruling his creation. All of this research, all this ability now we have to build these buildings and air condition these buildings and fly and drive cars and, and all the things that we enjoy, all that is the subduing activity that man is charged to do. The reason that any business exists is to do what we're supposed to do here in Genesis 1.26. That's the biblical basis for business right here. Did you ever think about that? Thinking about, okay, is that over? <laughs> Done? Ring the bell? <laughs> Somebody a <had> revelation. <laughs> but, you know, have you ever thought about what is the biblical basis for business? You know, why does business exist? Well, it exists right, right here. It tells us. It's a tool, a vehicle to enable us to rule God's creation. All right, so everybody hopefully gets this or gets some level of understanding that that's why we're here. Okay, then we have this thing called sin. The sin gets in the way. Sin blocks us. Sin as you will learn in the course, sin is sand in the gears. And what, is, what happens when you put sand in the gears? Gears don't work very well, do they? And so what we have to do is we have to deal with sin. If we don't deal with sin, then we are going to just, we're going to be going along on a flat tire, or maybe four flat tires, on the rims. And it's not going to be very pretty. And so 
what we've got to do is deal with this whole sin issue because sin creates character issues. You stop and ask yourself, what are the most of the problems that I have in the workplace? Whether it's with myself or with my colleagues, what are those problems? Most of the time, it's sin. Now, we don't talk about sin in the workplace because we think that's not, not acceptable. We've got this separation of work and church going on. Separation of work and God. We don't bring God into the workplace, so we don't talk about sin. But the reality is sin is at work in our workplace. And that's what's causing the inefficiencies in our organization. So now we have the solution for sin. And that's, that's the cross of Christ. He came to die for our sin to free us from sin. Now, why do we need to be freed from sin? Any reason? Just to go to heaven? You know, when I grew up, I, every Sunday I heard the gospel message. That's what you do in a Baptist church. Who, who grew up Baptist here? Anybody grew up Baptist beside me? I mean, did y'all hear that? Every Sunday? Had the, had the invocation. It would just, I mean, just as I am. How many times can you sing just as I am? Over and over again. And finally somebody just says, somebody go forward so we can stop this. For those of you that are not Baptist, you don't understand that. But until somebody goes forward, the pastor is not going to stop. So anyway, I mean, that's where I grew up. And I, and I am, please, I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. I mean, we all misperceive and misunderstand. But my perception was the game was, was going to heaven. That was my, what I thought the game was. You know, I, I shared with the facilitator school the other day, kind of, I come up with a theory of how this, if, if, my, if my understanding was correct, how, it, you know, Billy Graham's crusades, it could have been done better. You know, Billy Graham, uh, although he wasn't formally a Baptist, I don't think, he, he was functioned in the Baptist circles and highly respected. I remember from early, early days hearing about Billy Graham. And, you know, he had millions of people all over the world go forward in his crusades to accept Christ. The, there's been studies done to see how many of those people actually move forward in their faith. And the statistics are something like 3 to 6%. So the fallout rate is huge. And so my theory was this. Look, if the game is to populate heaven, I have, an, I have a solution. I know how to fix the problem with a Billy Graham approach. It's real easy. Here's what you do. You have the crusade. You have the invitation. You get them up. You pray them. Pray the prayer. Then you kind of scoot them over to a side room. And you have a bunch of counselors over there. And they talk to each one of them individually, and, and they get satisfied. Once they're satisfied that you have accepted Christ, we, we are satisfied you're making a profession of faith that's genuine and real, then we just shoot them. Boom. Got another one in heaven. Okay, next. Hey, we don't have, we don't, they don't have a chance to fall away. It's real easy. And then we can populate heaven. I got it. I got it. Yeah. All these years I've been confused, and now I figured out how to make it work. Well, I mean, we're being funny and everything, but, but you see, that, that was my thinking. My thinking was the game was populating heaven. I had no idea that I had responsibility here. I thought my job was to go out to my workplace, make as much money as I can, and run back to the church as fast as I can so we could do the real stuff in the church. But what was going on out there really was irrelevant. And you see, that's not the game. The game is I was sent out there to do kingdom work, to bring the rule and reign of God to where I was given authority. And I didn't get that for whatever reason. 
So Christ came to, to free me to go do that work. Because my sin is blocking me. I can't do it because it's, when I'm walking in my sin patterns, it's all about me. It's all about my agendas. It's all about money. In fact, I, I talk about people being M&M people. You know what M&M people are? They're people are, that are about me and money. It's M&M people. Does that describe most of the people you know? The M&M people? Yeah, I, I find over and over again, that's where most people are. They're M&M people. And so those people, it's really difficult to go forward with them and do anything any, in any context, particularly business. So we need Christ to free us from our sin patterns so we can do what God put us here to do. So what the Great Commission is all about, and this is another great misunderstanding I had, Great Commission is Christ, as he's leaving the planet, telling us what he wants us to do. Now, I don't want anybody to, don't look at your Bibles. I want you to look at me, and I want you to tell me how the Great Commission starts. Go, go is not the right answer. What? All authority. Boy, that's weird. What's that got to do with anything? He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What has that got to do with the Great Commission? You ever thought about that? Remember John talked about, about Luke, Luke 7? Luke 7 is the story about the centurion. The centurion had a sick servant. And he goes to his Jewish buddies. And they're, they're really, they have a nice relationship because he built their synagogue. <coughs> and that probably meant he funded it. Provided the labor. Hired the architect, the engineer. He built it. So they feel fondly toward him. And he said, look, I've got this servant that's sick. You know, would you go tell Jesus, you know, I need some help here. So they go and get Jesus and say, Jesus, this is a good guy. He's one of the good guys. Would you come and heal his servant? And so Jesus is coming. Well, the centurion never asked for Jesus to come. He didn't ask for that. And when he hears that Jesus is coming, he sends the messengers, another set of messengers saying, Hey, you don't have to come. I'm not worthy of you to come to me. You see the humility in him? I'm not worthy. None of us are worthy. He says, then, just say the word. He says, because I am a man under authority. You hear that? And then he illustrates that by saying, I tell this one to go and this one to go. He doesn't talk about what he's done. He talks about how he's exercised it. But he exercises authority by virtue of being under authority. And Jesus then was amazed. How often was Jesus amazed? Yeah. Usually amazed by lack of faith. Yeah. Really wasn't amazed at all. He, was very, he expected that. But he's amazed at this pagan man gets it. He gets the reality that we all lived under derived authority. One of the keys to finding your place is where has God given you authority? You ever think about that? And you've all seen it. You, you, you may not have paid attention to it, but look in your life and see where is it that you have authority. And so what Jesus is saying here is, I have all authority. The Father has given me all authority, and now I'm going to tell you what you have authority to do. That's us. Here's what we have authority to do, is go and make disciples of all ethnic groups.
Now, clearly, if you're going to make disciples, that's an individual thing. That's a one-on-one thing. You look at what Jesus did. Jesus had his three. He had his 12. He had his 70 and his 120 and his 500 different groups that he connected to at different levels. But clearly, he spent the majority of his time with his three. His most intimate times, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, with the three. And so that's a clue there as to how to do the game, is we need to be engaged in identifying our disciples. Now, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, that word baptize is a very, very interesting word. There's actually two words in the Greek for, for baptism. One word is to take something and dip it in water. Okay? Like, like a vegetable that's dirty, you take it and dip it in water to clean it off. Okay? Now, that's not the word used here. Now, that's kind of what we think about baptism is we go get them in a tank and dip them, right? Okay, that's not the word. The word that's used here is a different word. There's a word for baptized that, that refers to a process. And the process is you take, for example, it's a, it's a, it's a process for preserving a vegetable. So you take a carrot or some vegetable, and you've mixed up a solution of brine. And you actually dip the vegetable in that solution, and now the interaction between the solution and the vegetable transforms the vegetable. So now that vegetable is preserved. Do you see the picture? That's the word used here. We are to be put into the solution... So we're transformed so that we are preserved for the purposes of God, to do his bidding. So that's the context here. When it, this, this is so pregnant. This is so pregnant with meaning. This whole thing about baptizing has two key elements. First is the element of being identified with Christ. And the second element is being a, a transformed so that we can do the bidding of Christ. That's what a disciple looks like. Now, what I thought about for a long time is the Great Commission was about making converts. And we still talk about converts. The Great Commission is not about converts. Now, you have to be converted, but that's not but just a piece of the pie. The full game is a game of transformation that comes from being identified with your Creator. So that's what he's saying here. Go and make disciples because this is what I'm authorizing you to do. And then he says something very interesting. He says, teaching them doctrine. Right? Isn't that what he says? Teaching them the principles that I, I gave you, right? What's it say? Teach them to obey. Now wait a minute. That's what I do to my dog. I teach him to obey, isn't it? But you teach your dog to obey? I mean, what do you mean teach to obey? Why do you have to teach to obey? Well, this is the sin issue again. We have this bent in us to sin, and so what happens is we have to learn how to act, how to obey God. This is called training. You will hear about this in the course, the difference between teaching and training. Teaching is just cognitive, me telling you facts. Okay, I, we can talk to you about the theory of relativity, and I can teach you facts about that. That doesn't do much for you because you don't know what to do with that. But what if I train you into how to use that theory? Train you in how to apply so we learn by repetition. 
So let's go back and let's look at God's purpose for man. Let's go to the creation mandate. Now, this is something that we've all read and everything, but for me personally, I didn't get it. I don't know how many times I read it before I got it. I'm not sure I get it now, but I sure didn't get it for a long time. Because this is what God is saying. This is the reason I have made you. He spent this creative energy over this period of time, which we're not totally sure how long this took. Maybe it was 24-hour days. Maybe it wasn't. But some period of time in which he has put, put order into the universe, which, by the way, is a key to kingdom activity, is putting order into chaos. That's a picture of what kingdom work is. So... He's putting order into this chaos, and in the midst of all this, he says, okay, now that we've got pretty well everything set, now we need to make a ruling class of being. We have all these animals and creatures and all that kind of stuff going on, and plants and, and all this stuff, but we need somebody to rule this. And you notice that, that God said, let us. Did you notice that? Because he's speaking as a trinity here as a triune person, as a community. This is a conversation among the Godhead saying, Let's, let us make man in our image, which means man reflects God. An image of something is something that's not, not actually the substance, but something that reflects the characteristics of that substance. The moon reflects the sun, and what do we see? We see the moon, what appears to be the moon. But the light from the moon is not from the moon, it's from the sun. Okay, so to some degree, that's a picture. So let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. That's the game we're in, is ruling. That's what I did not understand growing up in Texas as a Baptist, going to church every Sunday. I didn't get that. Now, maybe my pastor spoke it clearly, and I just was a blockhead and didn't get it. Maybe I had a preconceived idea of what Christianity was. I didn't get it. Whatever it was... I did not get it. I did not understand that my job as a human being was to find what my was assigned to rule and rule it. And to go bring order out of chaos. That was my responsibility and I didn't get it. But that's what we're charged to do. Rulership has two basic characteristics. First of all, there's a multiplication. You know, if you think about being a disciple of Jesus Christ, here's a good text to start thinking about as to what a disciple does. One of the things a disciple does is he multiplies himself. He makes other disciples. The second thing that a disciple does is he goes and he takes whatever sphere of authority he's been given and he brings kingdom order to that sphere of authority. If you are responsible for a department in your company then you bring, you're charged to bring kingdom authority to that, that department. In your home, you're supposed to bring kingdom authority to your home. In your church, you bring kingdom authority to whatever you're responsible for. Wherever you have authority from God, you bring, you bring order. You bring the dominion, the rule and reign of God. You also bring mastery. There's another element of, being, of subduing things, and that is you master it. You learn how to do it well. You, you do research and development. You explore and understand how God made the universe. We talk about inventing things, and let me suggest we don't invent anything. We discover things. We discover how God's universe works, and we discover how to apply the wonderful things he's put in our universe to advance and further 
the, you know, mankind and what God has called us to do in ruling his creation. All of this research, all this ability now we have to build these buildings and air conditioning these buildings and fly and drive cars and, and all the things that we enjoy, all that is the subduing activity that man is charged to do. The reason that any business exists is to do what we're supposed to do here in Genesis 1.26. That's the biblical basis for business right here. Did you ever think about that? Thinking about, okay, is that over? <laughs> Done? Ring the bell? <laughs> Somebody a revelation. <laughs> but, you know, have you ever thought about what is the biblical basis for business? You know, why does business exist? Well, it exists right, right here. It tells us. It's a tool, a vehicle to enable us to rule God's creation. All right, so everybody hopefully gets this or gets some level of understanding that that's why we're here. Okay, then we have this thing called sin. The sin gets in the way. Sin blocks us. Sin is, as you will learn in the course, sin is sand in the gears. And what, is, what happens when you put sand in the gears? Gears don't work very well, do they? And so what we have to do is we have to deal with sin. If we don't deal with sin, then we are going to just, we're going to be going along on a flat tire, or maybe four flat tires, on the rims. And it's not going to be very pretty. And so what we've got to do is deal with this whole sin issue because sin creates character issues. You stop and ask yourself, what are the most of the problems that I have in the workplace? Whether it's with myself or with my colleagues, what are those problems? Most of the time, it's sin. Now, we don't talk about sin in the workplace because we think that's not, not acceptable. We've got this separation of work and church going on, separation of work and God. We don't bring God into the workplace, so we don't talk about sin, but the reality is sin is at work in our workplace, and that's what's causing the inefficiencies in our organization. So now we have the solution for sin, and that's, that's the cross of Christ. He came to die for our sin to free us from sin. Now, why do we need to be freed from sin? Any reason? Just to go to heaven? You know, when I grew up, I, every Sunday I heard the gospel message. That's what you do in Baptist church. Who, who grew up Baptist here? Anybody grew up Baptist beside me? I mean, did y'all hear that? Every Sunday? Had the, had the invocation? It would just, I mean, just as I am. How many times can you sing just as I am? <laughs> over and over again. And finally somebody just says, somebody go forward so we can stop this. <laughs> For those of you that are not Baptist, you don't understand that. But until somebody goes forward, the pastor is not going to stop. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, that's where I grew up. And I, and I am, please, I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. I mean, we all misperceive and misunderstand. But my perception was the game was, was going to heaven. That was my, what I thought the game was. You know, I, I shared with the facilitator school the other day, kind of, I'd come up with a theory of how this, if, if, my, if my understanding was correct, how, it, you know, Billy Graham's crusades, it could have been done better. You know, Billy Graham, uh, although he wasn't formally a Baptist, I don't think, he, he was functioned in the Baptist circles and is highly respected. I remember from early, early days hearing about Billy Graham. And, you know, he had millions of people all over the world go forward in his crusades to accept Christ. The, there's been studies done to see how many of those people actually move forward in their faith. And the statistics are something like 3 to 6%. So the fallout rate is huge. 
And so my theory was this. Look, if the game is to populate heaven, I have, an, I have a solution. I know how to fix the problem with the Billy Graham approach. It's real easy. Here's what you do. You have the crusade. You have the invitation. You get them up. You pray them. Pray the prayer. Then you kind of scoot them over to a side room, and you have a bunch of counselors over there. And they talk to each one of them individually, and, and they get satisfied. Once they're satisfied that you have accepted Christ, we, we are satisfied you're making a profession of faith that's genuine and real, then we just shoot them. Boom. Got another one in heaven. Okay, next. Hey, we don't have, we don't, they don't have a chance to fall away. It's real easy. And then we can populate heaven. I got it. I got it. Yeah. All these years I've been confused, and now I figured out how to make it work. Well, I mean, we're being funny and everything, but, but you see, that, that was my thinking. My thinking was the game was populating heaven. I had no idea that I had responsibility here. I thought my job was to go out to my workplace, make as much money as I can, and run back to the church as fast as I can so we could do the real stuff in the church. But what was going out there really was irrelevant. And you see, that's not the game. The game is I was sent out there to do kingdom work, to bring the rule and reign of God to where I was given authority. And I didn't get that for whatever reason. So Christ came to, to free me to go do that work. Because my sin is blocking me, I can't do it because it's, when I'm walking in my sin patterns, it's all about me. It's all about my agendas. It's all about money. In fact, I, I talk about people being M&M people. You know what M&M people are? They're people are, that are about me and money. It's M&M people. Does that describe most of the people you know? The M&M people? Yeah, I, I find it over and over again. That's where most people are. They're M&M people. And so those people, it's really difficult to go forward with them and do anything any, in any context, particularly business. So we need Christ to free us from our sin patterns so we can do what God put us here to do. So what the Great Commission is all about, and this is another great misunderstanding I had, Great Commission is Christ, as he's leaving the planet, telling us what he wants us to do. Now, I don't want anybody to, don't look at your Bibles. I want you to look at me, and I want you to tell me how the Great Commission starts. Go, go is not the right answer. What? All authority. Boy, that's weird. What's that got to do with anything? He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What has that got to do with the Great Commission? You ever thought about that? Remember John talked about, about Luke, Luke 7? Luke 7 is the story about the centurion. The centurion had a sick servant. And he goes to his Jewish buddies. And they're, they're really, they have a nice relationship because he built their synagogue. <coughs> and that probably meant he funded it. Provided the labor. Hired the architect, the engineer. He built it. So they feel fondly toward him. And he said, look, I've got this servant that's sick. You know, would you go tell Jesus, you know, I need some help here. So they go and get Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, this, this is a good guy. He's one of the good guys. Would you come and heal his servant? And so Jesus is coming. Well, the centurion never asked for Jesus to come. He didn't ask for that. And when he hears that Jesus is coming, he sends the messengers, another set of messengers saying, hey, you don't have to come. I'm not worthy of you to come to me. 
You see the humility in him? I'm not worthy. None of us are worthy. He says, then, just say the word. He says, because I am a man under authority. You hear that? And then he illustrates that by saying, I tell this one to go and this one to go. He doesn't talk about what he's done. He talks about how he's exercised it. But he exercises authority by virtue of being under authority. And Jesus then was amazed. How often was Jesus amazed? Yeah. Usually amazed by lack of faith. Yeah. Really wasn't amazed at all. He, was very, he expected that. But he's amazed at this pagan man gets it. He gets the reality that we all lived under derived authority. One of the keys to finding your place is where has God given you authority? You ever think about that? And you've all seen it. You, you, you may not have paid attention to it, but look in your life and see where is it that you have authority. And so what Jesus is saying here is, I have all authority. The Father has given me all authority, and now I'm going to tell you what you have authority to do. That's us. Here's what we have authority to do, is go and make disciples of all ethnic groups. Now clearly, if you're going to make disciples, that's an individual thing. That's a one-on-one thing. You look at what Jesus did. Jesus had his three. He had his twelve. He had a 70 and his 120 and his 500 different groups that he connected to at different levels. But clearly he spent the majority of his time with his three. His most intimate times, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, with the three. And so that's a clue there as to how to do the game, is we need to be engaged in identifying our disciples. Now he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, that word baptize is a very, very interesting word. There's actually two words in the Greek for, for baptism. One word is to take something and dip it in water. Okay? Like, like a vegetable that's dirty, you take it and dip it in water to clean it off. Okay? Now, that's not the word used here. Now, that's kind of what we think about baptism is we go get them in a tank and dip them, right? Okay, that's not the word. The word that's used here is a different word. There's a word for baptized that, that refers to a process. And the process is, you take, for example, it's a, it's, a, it's a process for preserving a vegetable. So you take a carrot or some vegetable, and you've mixed up a solution of brine. And you actually dip the vegetable in that solution, and now the interaction between the solution and the vegetable transforms the vegetable. So now that vegetable is preserved. Do you see the picture? That's the word used here. We are to be put into the solution to where we're transformed so that we are preserved for the purposes of God, to do His bidding. So that's the context here. When it, this, this is so pregnant. This is so pregnant with meaning. This whole thing about baptizing has two key elements. First, is the element of being identified with Christ. And the second element is being transformed so that we can do the bidding of Christ. That's what a disciple looks like. Now, what I thought about for a long time is the Great Commission was about making converts. And we still talk about converts. The Great Commission is not about converts. 
Now, you have to be converted, but that's not but just a piece of the pie. The full game is a game of transformation that comes from being identified with your creator. So that's what he's saying here. Go and make disciples because this is what I'm authorizing you to do. And then he says something very interesting. He says, teaching them doctrine, right? Know what he says? Teaching them the principles that I, I gave you, right? What's it say? Teach them to obey. Now, wait a minute. That's what I do to my dog. I teach him to obey, isn't it? Don't you teach your dog to obey? I mean, what do you mean teach to obey? Why do you have to teach to obey? Well, this is the sin issue again. We have this bent in us to sin, and so what happens is we have to learn how to act, how to obey God. This is called training. You will hear about this in the course, the difference between teaching and training. Teaching is just cognitive, me telling you facts. Okay, I, we could talk to you about the theory of relativity, and I can teach you facts about that. That doesn't do much for you because you don't know what to do with that. But what if I train you into how to use that theory? Train you in how to apply that. We practice with it. We, we look at it from different perspectives. We work all these different problems and try different things. And the whole point is to get your, get your life habit patterns changed. That's the game. So we, the teaching here is, to, is training in obedience to Christ. Now, now, we just had a wonderful experience with John, which I so enjoyed. That was really great. But guess what? That's not the whole Christian life. That's just a piece of it. That's the one thing we get to do from time to time. What we've got to learn to do is we've got to get into the, the hard work of learning to be trained to obey God. And training means you get disciplined. What happens when your dog disobeys you? And you're trying to train him to do things, like you're trying to train him not to go to the bathroom in the house, and he does, what do you do? You kind of beat him up a little bit, don't you? Stick his nose in the poop and say, don't do that! Slap, slap, slap! Hey, that's not fun! Has anybody been getting beat up a little bit right now in their life? Yeah, it, okay. Is anybody feeling any warfare going on? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm feeling the warfare. There's a battle going on here to block you from hearing what the Spirit of God wants to say to you. I mean, I can sense it. I know it's here because I know this. Uh, this is what I know. The enemy is very clever. And he doesn't waste his time on people that are not doing what God called them to do because they're no threat to him. Right? He's trying to exercise his authority to do what he can to, to develop his kingdom and to block the kingdom of God. So he's going to look for the people that are a threat to him. The only people that are a threat to him are the people that are doing what God created them to do. You are here because you're trying to engage in discovering what God called you to do, which means you're a threat to the enemy, which means you're a target. You just put a bullseye on your back. Okay? Now you might say, hey, I'm out of here. I don't want to be a bullseye. Well, if you're in the game... You're going to be a target. And you've got to know that God will give you the strength to deal with it, but you've got to stand up and stay in the game, stay in the battle. So the, 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 the challenge here with the Great Commission is to get us released, not to populate heaven, 
but get us released to become disciples who are being transformed into the image of Christ, who now can walk out the reality of what God has called them to do. That's why you were saved. You were saved to do what you were put here to do. So discipleship and what disciples do, disciples are about the will of God in their lives. And God has a will about everything in your life, including your work, where you work, and what you do at work. So when you think about what disciples do, disciples are about people who are being trained to obey Christ. Disciples are in a training process. Now, so we learn by repetition. So let's go back and let's look at God's purpose for man. Let's go to the creation mandate. Now, this is something that we've all read and everything, but for me, personally, I didn't get it. I don't know how many times I read it before I got it. I'm not sure I get it now. But I sure didn't get it for a long time. Because this is what God is saying. This is the reason I have made you. He spent this creative energy over this period of time, which we're not totally sure how long this took. Maybe it was 24-hour days. Maybe it wasn't. But some period of time in which... He has put, put order into the universe, which, by the way, is a key to kingdom activity. It's putting order into chaos. That's a picture of what kingdom work is. So he's putting order into this chaos. And in the midst of all this, he says, okay, now that we've got pretty well everything set, now we need to make a ruling class of being. We have all these animals and creatures and all that kind of stuff going on and plants and, and all this stuff. But we need somebody to rule this. And you notice that, that God said, let us. Did you notice that? Because he's speaking as a trinity here. As a triune person, as a community. This is a conversation among the Godhead saying, Let's, let us make man in our image. Which means man reflects God. An image of something is something that's not, not actually the substance, but something that reflects the characteristics of that substance. The moon reflects the sun, and what do we see? We see the moon, what appears to be the moon. But the light from the moon is not from the moon, it's from the sun. Okay? So to some degree, that's a picture. So let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. That's the game we're in, is ruling. That's what I did not understand growing up in Texas as a Baptist, going to church every Sunday. I didn't get that. Now, maybe my pastor spoke it clearly, and I just was a blockhead and didn't get it. Maybe I had a preconceived idea of what Christianity was. I didn't get it. Whatever it was, I did not get it. I did not understand that my job as a human being was to find what my was assigned to rule and rule it, and to go bring order out of chaos that was my responsibility and I didn't get it but that's what we're charged to do rulership has two basic characteristics first of all there's a multiplication you know if you think about being a disciple of Jesus Christ here's a good text to start thinking about as to what a disciple does one of the things a disciple does is he multiplies himself he makes other disciples the second thing that a disciple does is he goes and he takes whatever sphere of authority he's been given and he brings kingdom order to that sphere of authority. If you are responsible for a department in your company, 
then you bring your charge to bring kingdom authority to that, that department. In your home, you're supposed to bring kingdom authority to your home. In your church, you bring kingdom authority to whatever you're responsible for. Wherever you have authority from God, you bring, you bring order. You bring the dominion, the rule and reign of God. You also bring mastery. There's another element of, being, of subduing things, and that is you master it. You learn how to do it well. You, you do research and development. You explore and understand how God made the universe. We talk about inventing things, and let me suggest we don't invent anything. We discover things. We discover how God's universe works, and we discover how to apply the wonderful things he's put in our universe to advance and further the, you know, mankind and what God has called us to do in ruling his creation. All of this research, all this ability now we have to build these buildings and air condition these buildings and fly and drive cars and, and all the things that we enjoy, all that is the subduing activity that man is charged to do. The reason that any business exists is to do what we're supposed to do here in Genesis 1.26. That's the biblical basis for business right here. Did you ever think about that? Thinking about, okay, is that over? <laughs> Done? Ring the bell? <laughs> Somebody a revelation. <laughs> but you know, you ever thought about what is the biblical basis for business? You know, why does business exist? Well, it exists right, right here. It tells us. It's a tool, a vehicle to enable us to rule God's creation.